Well, welcome back to Sermon Notes. This is Garland. We got Michael and Josh. And this week, uh, we have got Steve Graves, the illustrious Steve Graves, teaching for us on Sunday morning. And so he'll be guiding our time here. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, yeah. Always good. You know, always we, fun. I want to say Steve's a guest, but Steve, you're not a guest because you're part of the body here at Fellowship Fable. You're a you're leading Discovery. You've led community groups. You teach in our men's ministry. You're very involved. So he, he may be a guest, Garland, to some of our listeners and some people who will be here on Sunday, but to us, he's one of us. Yeah. Thanks. Good to be here. We're, we're marching forward in our Ephesians uh, study, and so uh, we kind of <clears throat> split the series in an unusual way. So Paul breaks uh, out into what we call a household code, or really it's what does wisdom look like to, in being filled with the Spirit on the street level, and he applies it to some um, very specific categories that were near and dear to regular life in the ancient Roman world. He applies it to marriage, he applies it uh, to parenting, and he applies it to uh, relationships with masters and slaves. And we, we, we broke that off kind of in the middle last time to have a specific conversation about what is a, a typically hot button passage in our culture. That was last week, and Michael, you did a really good job. Um, that leaves us with the second, second and the hot third button. hot button issues of this passage. So um, give us the lay of the land, I guess, on where we're going to go. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 9. Yeah, yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm really excited about being with you um, and being able to um, guide us through a conversation about the text Sunday for sure. Um, it is a hot button text, Um and the the way I the way I think of, um, that I that I think we ought to think about it is certainly it's still in the middle of the household context, no question about that. Um, but it does it does provide some opportunity for 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 viewers and listeners and just people that are thinking about the scriptures to uh, <clears throat> to kind of elevate the way they think about the integration of the gospel or integration of their faith into the details of their everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that, that assumption is built into the entire book of Ephesians. There's no book of the Bible that does a better job of assuming that all of this massive theology that we have on the left side of our, our brain, right side of our brain, ought to, ought to actually be translated into our behavior on the other side of our brain. Hence, first three chapters are about every possible theological thing you can find in the New Testament, the cross, <laughs> salvation, justification, oneness, the church, anything, unification, pick it out. But then but then when you get to chapter three, there's this practical flip. Mm-hmm. And for some people would say, oh, well, yeah, it must be two writers, two books. It's really not. It's the assumption that the gospel intent was never that we have this separation between the gospel and the details of our life. So I think what Paul is doing is he's picking out some of the biggest chunks of what the details of our life really are made up of, mm-hmm. which is the family is one, which is a continuation from chapter five, and then work is the second. Um, I think it's easy to stumble around the discussion of slaves, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, but the in my opinion, the obvious uh, uh, assumption of the New Testament writer was he was talking about work. He was not necessarily talking about the things that we might think about when we talk about slaves today. He was actually jumping straight into the concept of work. So 
I think the way to apply um, the sixth chapter, first few verses, is actually look at how it is that the gospel informs and transforms your your family dynamic, your family life, and then how that also informs and transforms your work life. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's mm-hmm. kind of for me that's kind of the overarching big navigation. Now, under that, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, under mm-hmm. family and under work. Mm-hmm. So, and just to just to <clears throat> jump off that. If you think about how we how Paul has structured this particular section of the letter, you know, chapter four one, we've transitioned now. Uh, see how you walk, and he's given us these categories. We've noted them throughout on sermon notes, but we're really jumping in a long section here that goes all the way back up to chapter five, verse fifteen. Paul says, "Be very careful, or see, therefore, how you live, how you walk." And he says, not as unwise, but wise. And everything that follows is, what does wisdom look like? And so I, I think it it glides right naturally into talking about, well, wisdom is the knowledge of what it looks like to trust and obey God, fear the Lord, but applied in the street level. And so Paul then applies that in some street level context. Mm-hmm. And these are very important to allow the gospel's implications to hit my real life. And so I think I think it's a helpful way to think about it, how you're pointing it out uh, for us here. And uh, so we're in this section rooted all the way back in 515. The imperative that drives everything that follows is in uh, verse ni- uh, verse 19, be filled with the Spirit at the end of verse 18 and all those, uh, those uh, participles that follow. Um, as we get down into chapter 6, 1 to 9, uh, what we do on sermon notes is what's the stuff that didn't make it in. Uh, and there's always stuff as we prepare these sermons um, that we might talk about, uh, you know, over coffee or in one of our meetings that just for, for whatever reason, we didn't have the time to, to get it in on, on a Sunday morning. So uh, what do our, our community group leaders, people doing discipleship or just studying the text on their own, what do they, do they need to know as they study this passage? It might not make it into the sermon. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when you go into the practical parts of, of, of living out your faith, it's really important that you that a person doesn't try to approach the scripture as some sort of of hundred percent guaranteed, you know, money back. This is the this is the manual rule book. If you'll just follow these fifteen things, your life's going to be perfect. If it's applied to family, if you'll just do these five things, Garland, you and your wife and your children will never have a snafu ever. It would be so nice to have received that. It is. It is. (laughs) If it was applied to work, same thing. So I think what's really important is to understand that even though Paul. You know, the way I like to put it is no single verse of the Bible contains all of God's wisdom on any particular issue or topic. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it's inadequate or inaccurate. It just means that there's more. There's more. And so whether whenever you're talking about like parenting, it would be important that you don't take just one section of the scripture and try to build an entire portfolio of everything you think God has to say about parenting. Uh, because there's a lot of verses about a lot of topics. In this particular verse, you know, it's really interesting that that I'm I'm I really think the concept of honoring uh, children honoring their parents and parents nurturing their children. I think that's the big idea to really unpack and to get your head around. The reason I open the reason I mentioned what I did earlier is because that's just those are just two thoughts. That's just one thought for the kids and one thought for the parents. We know that God has got more than just one thought to parents and to kids. But in this particular passage, it's it's just one big idea. And so, um, and and where I was going, the thing that I, I'm probably not going to be able to spend any time with is I'm I'm of the opinion that if every relationship dynamic 
uh, every every relationship uh, 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 kind of situation, no matter what they are, if people would bring um, honoring and nurture to those relationships, I'm kind of the opinion that you're you're feeding a, go- a pretty a gospel mainline. Mm-hmm. Now, this particular text is it contextually it's built into parents and children. But I, I think there's some. I, I got to thinking about relationships in general, and I think every relationship, regardless of where it sits, if people would honor each other and try to nurture each other as the core way we relate, I think things would really get a lot better. So I'm, that was an interesting thing to me that I spent a little time thinking about that I don't think will show up anywhere mm-hmm. Sunday morning. What's fascinating is in another place, it's actually another <laughs> one of Paul's prison letters. He will say. They're, they're famous words. We, we say them all the time. It's in Philippians 2. And I think that's what you're getting at. He'll say, hey, don't do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit, mm-hmm. but with humility, regard each other. Their, their interest is more important than my own. And well, I think that Paul would also apply that to parents with children. Yep. And I think as a parent of little kids, and you've raised your kids, uh, uh, they're already adults um, in varying degrees of, of adulthood. Yes. Um, yes. But that could be really difficult to look at your kids and go, that a message applies to me. Yeah. I actually need to look at their interests. We, In a meta way, we feel like we always are, but then how can I look at their interests right now to find ways to honor and serve them, yeah. um, not just uh, dictate to them? Um, yeah. that, that's well, a helpful reminder. Well, the, build, you know, the, the, the build-in, <clears throat> Garland, is when you transition, obviously the concept of obedience is a, it's an elementary baby step. With, with parents and children in the family situation. Because otherwise, you have to answer the question, well, are you supposed to obey parents if they give you bad things to do? Well, no. Well, what, what, what age do you stop obeying? Well, the, the intent of the text is a child, a young child. And so we know that my, my adult children are not supposed to obey me. We know that. So where is it that you stop obeying? And I think the concept is obedience is something that's important in the early stages of parenting, children, et cetera. But eventually you have to get into honoring each other as humans, as, as, as people, as adults, because that's how you're going to relate to each other as adults, even though they're your children. You know, um, So I, I'm, I'm with you there for sure. Um, that's one topic. The, the other topic <clears throat> that I think we will we'll, we'll spend some time with, but there's no way we're going to be able to adequately really uh, wrestle it down, is, is really understanding... The, the discussion of slavery in the New Testament and then making the jump into the world we live in today mm-hmm. and making sure we really understand what the New Testament was trying to say when it talked about it, but then also jumping into the world we live today without getting lost in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that um, it's very hard. Actually, the Yale the Yale Anchor Bible Dictionary. Um, I did a little bit of reading on it over the weekend, and um, it does a really nice job of saying it's virtually impossible for people to, in today's culture to adequately jump um, back into the New Testament. When we think of slavery, we think of those horrible, evil things that happened and are still happening. If you, if I saw a documentary over the weekend with the Qatar, mm-hmm. the 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 FIFA World Deal, and it literally the whole thing was on slavery. Mm-hmm. It was amazing, a horrible situation. But back to the back to the topic. Um, in the New Testament days, you know, slavery it, slavery was it, it wasn't for a lifetime. Okay, it was not racially based at all, at all. 
And the, and the Yale uh, Anchor Bible Dictionary makes the case, it makes the case that basically a, a person was able to uh, elevate their life by being able to fold into a household, a family, and become part of their family. Now, you can't think adoption because that's not really adequate to carry the weight. Um, but this notion that there would be somebody walking around screaming, slaves of the world unite, and all of the slaves in the New Testament days would wake up and, and join a movement, that's crazy. That, like, they're, like somebody would say, what are you talking about? I, f- I finally have got me a job. I finally have somebody who cares for me. I finally have a family I can relate to. Now, that uh, I am by no means justifying what we know as the 17th, 18th, 19th, even the 20th, 21st century things are happening. The question that has to be asked and answered is, is why does the New Testament appearingly, seemingly not scream abolish slavery, mm-hmm. but instead seeming to endorse slavery? And that's the whole point. The point is it's a different setting it is not endorsing the world of slavery as we know it from the Caribbean islands and the New World and all of that. So when a you know like a a modern reader, especially let's say a skeptical reader, maybe reads this, and maybe you, uh, sermon notes listener, uh, comes along to this passage, it can jar you. Right. It can be a little surprising. And what I think some of our expectation is, you know, Paul should have been stronger against <laughs> slavery here, um, and so assuage that fear. Um, yes, it's a little bit different context. Um, uh, it's, it didn't, it didn't have the same racial overtones. Uh, but you know, you're in Manhattan and you're encountering somebody who's a skeptic and they approach this passage, uh, or you're talking with uh, one of your kids. Maybe they read this passage when they're growing up and they go, I don't know what to do with this. How would you assuage that fear? Here's what I would say. I would say, have you ever heard of William Wilberforce? Mm -hmm. Have you ever read about his world and his life? Have you ever seen anything and done anything? Go read him and then get back to me. Okay. <laughs> My point would be this. William Wilberforce was a it was a, was an English British parliamentarian, a philanthropist, huge, but he was also a, a, a strong follower of Jesus. He spent 18 years. He woke up one day and said, My faith must alter. It must inform and transform the way I think about my job, and his particular job was a parliamentarian, a, a politician. He was he literally became inflamed with the concept of slavery, of what was going on at his time in the Caribbean islands, what was moving through the British Parliament, the New World. He spent 18 years, his whole life was spent fighting it, okay? Um my point is, is what slavery has become in our world today, it just wasn't what was going on back there. If it was to think that the that people of faith would not have risen up, you know, um, they, they would have. Uh, my point is, is people of faith since the 17th, early 1800s have been uh, largely, uh, not everywhere, unfortunately, but they've been largely people who have driven some of the clarity and some of the conviction around um, uh, treating that. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're not going to ever dismiss the language of the Bible. And one of the things that happens um, without going off too far down the curve is the Bible was never written, in my opinion, the Bible was never written to be a manual to do anything. Okay? Mm-hmm. I, 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 it wasn't It wasn't. That or a Whether rule book for life. It wasn't sorts, a yeah. rule book for life. It's not a manual on how to parent. It's not here's the blueprint on how to do church polity. And now there's a lot of that in there. 
Okay. But the primary thing it is, it's a, it's a guidebook on how to relate to the creator and how the creator wants to relate to me and you and everybody else, but me, but me right here. And so embedded in the New Testament is all of this language. And so when we read the word slave, the, the backdrop of that whole thing is really about me and my God. It's not about an, an ethical thing going on in my culture. It doesn't mean the Bible doesn't address stuff of ethics. It does. It does. But what God really wants me to understand, which is the rest of that text, is that have I, have I ever really, has it ever dawned on me that I have, a, I have an identity and a belonging to him just like the first century slave did? The first century slave was a nobody until they attached themselves to a family, and then they became that person's, that, that person's household, their entity. Uh, yes, there were some legal ownership things. The slaves couldn't, a person couldn't not work and not get paid, things like that. But the backdrop of the whole thing is a spiritual, it's a spiritual formula, not a formula, excuse me. It's more of a spiritual um, construct mm-hmm. of how I relate to my Savior in the gospel message. Does that make, am I making yes, any sense? Maybe to use language that Paul would use is he opens, <clears throat> we tend to obscure this in translation, but Paul, his favorite way to refer to himself is the same word. He'll say, Paul, now we translate it as bond servant often yeah, yeah. or a servant, yeah, but yeah. it's the word doulos, same yeah, word here. Uh, so just go, go take your translations. And every time you see Paul say, I, Paul, a bond servant, take the word and replace the word with slave. That's what right. Paul's saying, right. a slave of Christ. And so uh, it does serve as a construct, at least that Paul uh, regularly employs to talk about himself when it comes to his God. Um, you know, one thing, Steve, as you were talking, and it struck me as I was studying the end of chapter five for last week was, in each of these sets of relationships, we see God's heart for the powerless person in these dynamics. And so he says, children obey, but, but fathers don't provoke them. Obviously, in the in the marriage section, we saw wives submit, but husbands love them, treasure them, care for them. He says, slaves, obey your masters. But then he says, but masters, remember that you have a master. Right. Um, and so I think one of the things we see in this is just God's heart for the powerless in every power dynamic that we see in our society then yeah. and now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's precisely, uh, I think that's really at the core of the, of the idea of the last part of Ephesians, um, uh, because when you move on even past this section, then the assumption there is is that a believer will find themselves powerless against the enemy, and guess what happens then? God's God Spirit comes strong into me. Now I might not have been powerless like the slave was, or the child was, or the spouse, or whatever. But it. But I, I think that's a really nice insight, Michael. I agree with that. It's interesting, and if you if you're, you know, reading this, maybe you do have a skeptical neighbor or friend or son or daughter. Maybe just you you read this and it 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 lands poorly. I, I would encourage you um, go and read the little short letter we've been emailing back and forth. That Paul's letter to uh, Philemon, and it's going to be very strong language that Paul will employ. And as you finish the letter. Um, there's just the words on the page, but then there's the rhetorical effect, I think, that Paul is employing there. And notice his language of, um, as he says here in Ephesians chapter 6, of 
that there's no favoritism. There's, we each have one Lord. About a decade earlier, Paul had written another letter to another church and said there's no longer you know, a slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Paul has a category-breaking expectation of what has happened in the gospel and its implications, and it largely shatters our expectations of power. And that's what he's employing here. Um, and he's, he's giving both the husband and wife, the father and the children, and the slave and master, this radical reorientation of how we address and see power and authority. And in so doing, I think it's supposed to be shaped like Jesus's power. And he says something, oh, I'm sure it's in Mark in chapter 10 when he says, <laughs> you know how people treat power out there, the Gentiles, they lord it over. But not so among you. He says, if you want to be great, you must become doulos, slave of all. And he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It's almost like Jesus means for us to use that as how we employ power. The powerful and the great are the servants or the slaves of all. And so when we think of it in terms of uh, those kinds of terms, uh, our notions of power, powerless, are totally eradicated or changed significantly because of the way Jesus is now defined power. And that's just helpful when we read a section like this or Philemon to just recognize how dramatic what Paul is saying is in the ancient world and in the modern world. Any last, uh, any last words from any of you guys? Um, you know, I don't, I don't really have any, uh, that I can think of. I mean, I, I do, I do want to say this one, one thing actually, um, I'm always, whenever I'm reading the epistles, uh, I'm always just, I'm always kind of taken back at Paul's ability to keep the context and his, let me back it up and say it a different way. I'm always amazed at Paul's ability to, um, to unpack the gospel uh, in a context that, that he personalizes it from his own world. And I don't know if I'm making very much sense here, but like what you don't have with Paul is you don't have a guy that's just sitting up there whipping up stories and sermons. That is not what's happening. What you have is him literally diving into the struggles and the pains and the confusions and the frustrations. And so it gives me a little bit of confidence and, and a little bit of hope and encouragement because literally, um, you know, like there's not a week that goes by that I don't have my list of things I'm struggling with or that I'm confused about or whatever. But that was the intent of the gospel, according to Paul. Paul made this massive assumption that the gospel was supposed to be penetrating, informing, transforming, invading, converting, colliding, pick a verb you want, mm-hmm. the, the details of my life every week, every day. So just that, that'd be my parting thought. Yeah, that's really helpful. That's great, Steve. And I'm just going to do a quick shameless plug, which is maybe last week you thought, man, I need to lean in and and really study what God's Word says about marriage. Or this week you're thinking, man, I could really spend some time thinking about how to parent biblically. That's two of our community group offerings as we relaunch community groups in January. So be thinking about it now, maybe. Talk if you're married, tuck it over with your spouse, pray about it. Um, We'll also be offering um, Esther and Daniel as a study, as well as Spiritual Habits with Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But just these two weeks with marriage and parenting, those are two things that we have great community group studies on. So something for people to be thinking about. Well, as always, thank you for listening to Sermon Notes. We'll see you Sunday. Have a good time with your small group.